In the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, we are presented with God's wonderful plan through the death and resurrection of Jesus to save for himself a diverse family of saints who are being transformed by Jesus to live like Jesus. This is Galatians, God's very good idea. And we are Mercy Village Church, located in Barbersville, West Virginia. And you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. Okay, as has already been said, we're launching into a new series today. The book of Galatians. It's going to be, uh, I think, quite a journey for us. And I'm excited to share it uh, together. But I want to start with... uh, a great idea that a friend of mine had. I think that it'll set the tone for us. Uh, my friend Gary, he was kind of like Kramer on Seinfeld. He, he lived across the street from my house growing up, and, and he wouldn't even knock. He would just, you know, kind of burst in the door. He kept food in our refrigerator for, uh, you know, if we were having a certain meal, and he wanted soda. He knew my mom wasn't buying soda, so he'd keep his own soda there. Uh, still to this day, friends with uh, him and his family, although he's moved, uh, both of us have moved, and so we're not as close. But uh, one time he had this brilliant idea, and I don't know if you've ever had a brilliant idea, but uh, his was extra brilliant. Not really, but it was funny. So he had this idea for what he called the ham driver. Now what the ham driver is, is a hammer, but sometimes you have your hammer and then you realize, I don't know when this happens to people, but you realize that's not a nail, that's a screw. I need a screwdriver, not a hammer. So the ham driver in the handle of the hammer would have, uh, you know, hidden in it a Phillips head and a flathead screwdriver bit, and then you could adjust it and then just use the hammer. So he called it the ham driver. So the name was terrible. It almost sounded like Uber for pigs or something. I don't know, you know, ham driver. But uh, the name was terrible. The idea was, you know, suspect. I mean, he probably could have sold a few of them, I'm sure, with the right marketing. But not necessarily a, a good idea. I've not had, but I'm not one to talk, right? Because I haven't had a whole lot of good ideas in my life either. I had one. It was to marry this woman right here. That was a good idea. Uh, but uh, that's about it for me. Uh, but God originates all. He is the fountain of all truly good ideas. And in the uh, book of Galatians, the letter to the churches in Galatia, we are going to see a very good idea. This letter is filled with statements, details, examples, realities, proofs, implications of God's very good idea to save for himself a people. And so the first five verses today is where we'll be in Galatians, but they're actually going to serve to overview the entire book of Galatians. And as they do that, we're going to see that God's very good idea is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, I'll put it up here, a diverse family is born to a life of ongoing transformation by the power of the Spirit. If I could sum up the book of Galatians in one sentence, that would be it. That the truth of the gospel brings together, as we'll see, a Not just multi-ethnic, but multi-generation, multicultural, multi-class, multi-experienced family, group of people who are being transformed day by day into Christ-likeness by the Spirit of Jesus. That is God's very good idea. 
And Lord willing, we'll be captured by that, not just today, but in the weeks and months to come. And it'll lead to that transformation that is promised and uh, called for in the book of, of Galatians. Father, today, what we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us. And what we have not, please give us. And if I might be vulnerable before you, and you know my heart already, and before your children, I desperately need you today. Um, I think of something Carolyn said to me this week, that being up here in front and leading, how it makes me desperately aware of how short I come in living up to the truths that I will proclaim. And that can make one feel defeated. But I'm going to call everyone today to lean into your grace. And so I start there. Leaning into your grace, your forgiveness, your power. It will be your word that speaks to your people today, not me. It will be the realities of Jesus that are seen by your people today, not the realities of my life. And so while I definitely pray certainly pray that my life and our lives will be transformed more and more to be less hypocritical, less falling short of what you've called us to, that we won't set the benchmark of your grace and goodness on my back or the benchmark of your grace and goodness on the backs of your saints, but we'll put that on Jesus. He is the standard bearer of righteousness and goodness. And it's his grace that we trust in today as we proclaim your word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So we're going to overview the book through these first five verses. And what we'll see, we're going to see the author, we're going to see the audience, and then we're going to see the message. And in that, we'll get a picture of what's coming in the book of Galatians. So the author is obvious. The very first word of the book is his name, Paul. Now, Paul was also known as Saul. Now, I'm going to clear something up for all of us because it took me a while to, to learn this as well. Saul did not have his name changed to Paul. So I'm sorry to ruin that for you all today. I used to say that. Saul, he was converted and his name was changed to Paul and it was just this exclamation point on the great story of his conversion. But actually, and you see this play itself out, he even refers to himself as Saul towards the end of Acts as he's telling the story. He says, my Hebrew name. He said, he says, he speaks to King Agrippa and he says, in Hebrew, uh, Jesus came to me and he used my Hebrew name. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So that's just nitpicky. But Saul was also known as Paul. But just because his name is changed isn't part of his conversion story doesn't make his conversion story any less miraculous. It's still mind-blowing, his conversion. If you've read it, and you can in Acts chapter 9 and in Acts chapter 26, Saul, Paul, also known as Paul, hated Christians. He was a Jew, and not only a Jew, a Pharisee who followed the Old Testament, the, the Torah, the laws of the Torah, to the letter, inside and out. And for him, he thought that meant that the way of Jesus must be extinguished and crushed. And on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians and possibly even stand by while Christians were killed, Jesus saved him. 
knocked him off his horse with a bright light and spoke to him. And, and he not only saved him, but he called him to something. This is just a snippet of his story of redemption. Jesus said to him, rise and stand upon your feet. Now, if you remember, he's actually blind and he has to be led into the city. But he says, for I've appeared to you for a purpose. So here we see a couple things. First of all, Jesus appears to him. He sees the risen Jesus. This is a year after Jesus' death, at least a year after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So he's not seeing him in the same way that, that those who were his followers uh, during his ministry saw him, but he sees Jesus. Jesus says, I appeared to you for a purpose, to appoint you. So I'm calling you to something. I have a purpose for you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you. He says, what, because, so what evidently has happened on the road to Damascus, and not to get too off in the weeds, is that Jesus has already started to reveal to Paul, here's where you can see me in the Old Testament, here's where you can see me in my life and ministry, and he's begun to open his eyes to that, and he also says, I will continue to show you new things, and you will bear witness to these things, and you will be a servant or a slave to these things. In fact, Paul, for the rest of his ministry, will refer to himself as a slave to Christ, or a slave to the gospel. He serves that purpose. So he's been appointed, which will appear, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. He's saying, I'm going to protect you as you go. I'm going to protect your integrity. I'm going to protect the message of the gospel to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul has been called to something. Now what he's been called to is not only to go to his people, the Jews, but actually more primarily to go to those outside of the, the Jewish race, the Gentiles, with the message of the gospel. And this becomes his calling, and it's where he gets his title. Paul, an apostle. Apostolos is the Greek word. It just means sent one. And so by that definition, all of us who are children of God are apostles. We've been sent with the message of Jesus into the world around us. But in its proper sense, it referred first and foremost to the 12 disciples, those who had followed Jesus most closely in his ministry. And you can find lists of their names throughout the uh, Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who those were. Now, of course, one of them will betray Jesus in the end, Judas, and that'll bring the number down to 11. But these are 11 people who were called and commissioned by Jesus. They saw him. They walked with him. They knew him intimately and in person. Now, when Judas, or, uh, wow, <laughs> who betrayed Jesus? Help me out. Who? Judas, yeah, thanks. I completely forgot. I'm, see, like I said, that's why I prayed for help. When Judas betrays Jesus, they get another guy. Do you remember Matthias? They actually, uh, the apostles in Acts chapter 1, get together and say, okay, Judas is gone. Remember, he hangs himself and his life is ended. He's no longer a part of the team of 12. Peter spearheads the bringing on of another apostle, and they choose a man named Matthias. 
And Matthias becomes, and he had, he had been with Jesus during his years of ministry as well. He wasn't as close as the 12 had been, but he'd seen Jesus. He'd been there to witness his death and his resurrection. And Matthias becomes an apostle, bringing the number back to 12. But there's some controversy here. There's also some controversy, as we'll see, with Paul. Because Paul technically would be number 13. Because Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus. He calls him and commissions him. And the Bible plays out that title for him throughout all of Scripture, Apostle of Jesus. But in that day, because his calling and his commissioning was so different from the other 11 disciples, there were those who would undermine his ministry. There are those who would undermine his apostolic authority as a missionary of the gospel. It wasn't accepted right away by all those who were of the Christian faith. That's going to play into what we see as the context of this letter. But Paul, we know now, was an apostle of Jesus. And this matters because what he speaks to next is his identity. And this matters to all. You hear a lot of identity is almost this buzzword. That we know who we are, we know what our identity is. And one of the reasons it is a buzzword, it is because it's a very important topic. It is something that, that matters, that we know who we are and, and what we're called to do as people. And there's all sorts of places that we can find our identity, but Paul starts by saying where his identity is not. He says, Paul, an apostle, this is my name and my title, not from men or through men. You see, as we'll see in a second, and I'll, and I'll elaborate more, he's speaking into a situation, into a context where his authority and his message are being questioned. So he wants his audience to know that, my, that his authority, his message isn't from man, it isn't from his own flesh, it instead is coming from God. Not from men or through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. If you personally, if I personally root our identity in what the world says, that's shaky ground. Anyone comes against your message, the message of the gospel, you might feel shaky in it. But if you root your identity in Christ and in the promises of God, then you have a stable foundation. That's the direction that Paul is headed in. But first, he gives a shout-out to his team. He says, I'm not the only one who is responsible for writing this letter to the Galatians. It is his pen. It is him primarily, but there's others who help. And all the brothers who are with me. Now, he doesn't describe how they helped. He doesn't even say who they are specifically, but he says there are others with me. This both speaks to his authority. He's not the only one who believes what is written in this letter, but it also speaks to the fact that he's not flying solo like some you know super Christian who's just able to, to rattle all this stuff off by himself. No, he has other people with him. Of course, the Holy Ghost is the one inspiring him. I don't know if you've ever wrote a book of the Bible before, but there's a lot of work that goes into that. And so he had others there with him. A good leader acknowledges his team. The reason he doesn't name them is interesting to me, or at least the reason I think he doesn't name them is because he's talking to these churches in Galatia, as we'll get to, and they likely don't know who is on his team of people 
And so he just calls them the brothers in the faith. It'd be like if, if I was talking about Mercy Village Church and our core team of people who have helped plant this thing, if I was doing that locally amongst people who, who know many of you, I would list names. I, you know this family and that family and this individual and that individual. These, right, it's not Paul that's planted uh, Mercy Village Church. It's all these people together who have done it, and here's their names. But if I was somewhere where no one knows you, I'd probably just say these brothers and sisters in Christ have helped along the way. So that's probably why he leaves out their names. In other places, he'll specifically specifically name them. But he acknowledges who his team is. So that's the author. We've been introduced to the author, Paul the Apostle, who has his identity rooted in Jesus and the truth of the gospel. We'll come back to that. And he has this team that's with him. But who's his audience? Who is this letter intended for? The second half of verse 2 says, To the churches, and you have to read carefully, because that's a plural, you've got to see that, the churches of Galatia. So it's map time. I, we all love maps, I know. You see that little red square up there? That's going to put you, uh, that's where we're about to zoom in to. Just so you know, this is in the world, right? And the world isn't just this country over here on the left. There's more, you know. There's more than just Canada and Mexico and, and America. Some of you are like, Canada and Mexico? What's that? Um, there's an entire globe of countries. And so when we zoom in, we see what is today now Turkey and Syria and Lebanon and Israel. And yet down there at the very bottom of the map, that little green portion that's jutting up, that's Egypt. A lot of what happens in Scripture happens in this region of the world. And if you go back even further, you'll see that the names of these places were different. And there was a region that the Roman government had created called Galatia. So this was a district of the Roman Empire, and in that district were tons of cities. Now, it might be a for you with the small TV, I apologize. Uh, but on Paul's first missionary journey, which would have happened about uh, 46 or 47 AD, which just to put you in context, about 13 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. About 13 years after all of those events, Paul goes on his first missionary journey, and part of his journey is through Galatia. And in Galatia, he stops at churches like Antioch. Not Antioch where he was sent from, but another Antioch. You know, we like to share church names now, too. Like, you'll see a lot of, you know, Redeemers or, you know, uh, I don't even know what some pop. First Baptist, that's the one guy with a first in there. You know, like, we share these names. So that someone else picked up Antioch as well, but it was Antioch and Pisidia. And then there's Iconium, uh, Lystra, and Derby. There's probably more as well, but these are places where there are small, growing churches. And Paul visits all of them on this trip. But now, one year later, most likely only a year, maybe two years later, he's having to write this letter to them. While he was there in person, he had proclaimed the true gospel. Now he's having to write a letter to remind them of the true gospel. Why? Well, that's important for us to know, too, about the audience. Not just where the audience was, but what the audience that this letter is to was experiencing. These churches there in Antioch had a debate going on. They had a struggle 
Paul was being undermined and his message was being undermined. So basically the, the idea is this. The people of God have been primarily ethnic Jews. Not exclusively. God had been saving people from other ethnicities from the start. But what's about to happen, or what is in the process of happening, is that God is opening up the kingdom in a new, massive way to host and host of people who are not ethnic Jews. And it's happening by the thousands. And so as these non-Jew, Jewish people, and these Jewish people begin to meet together, obviously there's going to be some differences and some conflicts that arise. There's a group of people that, that Paul refers to as the Judaizers, who were Jewish Christians who wanted to add something to the gospel. That it wasn't just by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ that salvation came, but you also had to obey the Jewish laws. In particular, the laws about Sabbath. And not only what you did on the Sabbath or didn't do on the Sabbath, but when you celebrated the Sabbath from sundown on Friday, and, or yeah, from sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday, Sabbath day. And all the entrappings that came with that, that for years had been a way that the people of God learned dependency on God learned what it means to, to trust him to sovereignly provide even when they're resting. There were lots of great things that come out of the Sabbath. But they were demanding that it be observed in the way that it was observed, or you weren't really a Christian. Not only that, but food. Like, it had to be kosher. And not only kosher, but there was this debate, if you remember from Acts chapter 15, about meat that had been offered to idols, that that was no longer able to be consumed by people who called themselves Christians. And so that is raging on. You have to believe, uh, as the Jewish people did historically, about what you eat, and then circumcision as well, which, if you don't know, you don't know. But... Most of you know what that is. But that would have been a requirement, right, for Jewish men to come into uh, relationship with God and relationship with the Jewish people, and they wanted to implement that on Christians as well. No thanks. Right? We won't get into that. So they say, this is how it has to be, or you're not a Christian. Of course, as we'll see clearly, not only in the book of Galatians, but in every other letter that Paul writes, he's saying salvation doesn't come through works. Salvation comes by the grace of God through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And faith in that. Faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. That is where salvation comes from. Of course, these Judaizers come along and say, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. He's not even a real apostle. Remember we touched on that? His calling wasn't the same as the other 11 disciples. His authority isn't even real. How can you trust his message? All the while, the other disciples are affirming the same message, right? But there's no social media. There's no viral videos. And so as they follow Paul around, this pioneer missionary, in the places where he's going, they're able to quickly slip in and undermine the truth of the gospel and undermine his authority. So that is the audience. That's where they are geographically, and that's where they are intellectually, mentally, emotionally, as Paul writes this letter to them. 
It's into this tension, this debate, this betrayal that Paul speaks his message. And here's how his message starts. To the people who are threatening to desert him, to the people who have believed these lies undermining his authority, people, by the way, he's going to call fools here in a few chapters. He starts, though, with grace and peace. He's not going to pull any punches in the book of Galatians. But he's not going to fail to love the people either. And he lays the baseline of that love out of the gate. And it's not his love. It's God's love. He says, grace and peace to you, not from Paul. Paul's probably shaking as he writes this, quite frankly. He's frustrated. He's angry. He's angry because of his love for these people and his desire for them to believe the truth of the gospel. But he writes probably, even in his anger, grace to you and peace. That has to come not from him, but from God our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, this grace and peace, this good news of the gospel, it's perfect for fools. He's going to call the Galatians fools because they were. They were deserting the true gospel. But you know who else was a fool? Paul was a fool. The Apostle Paul was a fool. And he experienced the grace of the gospel. You know who else is a fool? Me. You know who else is a fool? You. And yet grace and peace comes to fools like me and fools like you who don't always choose the right thing or live the right way or believe the right way comes grace and peace and that's a beautiful message that's the the message of the gospel he says jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our god and father you can have grace and peace not because paul's a good writer you can have grace and peace because God gave his son Jesus and Jesus gave himself up so that your sins could be forgiven. The death and resurrection of Jesus brings forgiveness of past sins. He gave himself for your sins. Paul had plenty of past sins. The Galatians had plenty of past sins. I, even this week, have plenty of past sins and so do you. Grace and peace was promised even to sinners because of Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection brings freedom from the present power. Not just past sins, but the present power and influence of sin as well. It says he, he will deliver us from the present evil age. Paul continued to struggle with sin. The Galatians continued to struggle with sin, and so do we. And, and yet God can give freedom because of Jesus, Ephesians 2, 4 through 8. This is the gospel. This is Paul's pen as well to another church at Ephesus. But God being rich in mercy and peace and grace because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were fools, even when we were deserters of the true message of the gospel, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him 
and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, even this evil age, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. That's the gospel, that's God's very good idea, that is life. That is light in the darkness. If you're here today and you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that is what you must believe, that sin separates us from a long, eternal relationship with God. It keeps us from being part of his family. But through the death of Jesus Christ, those sins are not just forgiven, right? They're imputed onto Christ at the cross. That means they're put on him and he receives the punishment for them. So through that grace, you and I might be saved through faith, believing on Jesus. And the result, our last verse here today, is to whom, to him, God, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Who gets the glory for God's very good idea? God does. It's his idea after all. It's him that executes the idea. It's, it's his power that pulls it off. He gets the glory forever and ever. Amen. That is God's very good idea. And that's the testament of Paul's life, by the way. He writes to the church of Corinth, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And might that be the testament of our lives as well, that because of God's very good idea to save us and his power that he executed it with, that we would then live our lives for his glory. So we see the author, we see the audience, and we see the message. This is all a springboard into uh, what will be the, this amazing letter that will spell out God's very good idea. In the first two chapters, what we'll see is the realities of the gospel laid out. He's going to proclaim doctrine intellectually, and he's also going to share with you his personal testimonies of experiencing the true realities of the gospel. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works, this is chapter 2, of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He's pushing back against the dissenting viewpoints that are not really the gospel at all. And in doing so, he's teaching us, even today, the true gospel. What is the real message of the gospel? In chapters 3 through 4, we'll see how this true gospel creates a diverse family. Know uh, then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It's not just ethnic Jews who are the sons of Abraham, but it is all those of faith. In the scripture, foreseeing God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and we're going to get into this. If you have questions, just wait. We'll get here. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Abraham got a gospel sermon from God when he said, In you all the nations of the world will be blessed. This isn't just going to be for people who share your DNA. This is going to be for the whole world. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so it is through the finished work of Jesus on the cross that this diverse family is born. Multi 
generational, multi-class, multicultural, multi-experiential, multi-ethnic family. It's always been the plan of God. And lastly, in chapters 5 and 6, we'll see that this diverse family that has been saved by the true gospel of Jesus is transformed by the Spirit of Christ. Chapter 5, verses 22 through 26, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. We've become new people. If we live by the Spirit, let us all also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And the total sum of it all will be this, that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, a diverse family is born to a life of ongoing transformation by the power of the Spirit. That is God's very good idea, and it can be your very good reality today. We shared the gospel a second ago out of Ephesians. Paul's going to share it again with the church, churches in Galatia this way in chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. God's very good idea can be your very good reality today through faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That verse is summed up with some really fancy terms. Like a theologian would say that penal substitutionary atonement brings to pass double imputation by justification through faith. What? Basic people like me say it like this. Because Jesus took our place, sinners can be winners by putting their trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Right? The punishment that should have been mine, Jesus took it on the cross. He was my substitute. And in that came atonement, the the greatest buyback of all time, purchasing us back into the family of God through faith. Because Two things were imputed. Two things were given. Our sin was put on Jesus so that his righteousness could be put on us. Through that, through faith, comes our justification. We are made right before God. If you've never believed in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for your salvation, trust him today and be saved. If you are a child of God, as we take this journey, there's a couple things I'd like to think about as we travel through the book of Galatians. One, where is your identity? Paul had to think about it as he wrote the letter. Would it be defined by what the world said about him? Would it be defined what uh, these Judaizers said about him? Or would it be defined by what Jesus says about him? Might our identity be found not on what the world says, not in the world views of those around us, but may it be shaped by God's very good idea. How's that going to happen for us? 
It's not going to happen because you show up and listen to a sermon every Sunday. I'm not that good of a preacher. It'll happen through the regular disciplines of the Christian life. The basics. If you want to see your identity become deeply rooted in what God says about you through Jesus, then we must get back to the basics. Sir Beth and I were listening to a podcast in the car the other day. It's talking about this vision of cutting out the fancy stuff and just being people and churches who just pray, read our Bibles, gather together with other Christians and share our faith. And how revolutionary it would be, right? Not that we don't do anything else, but that those are the things we prioritize. Those are the things that drive the mission. Those are the things that drive the programming and the vision of the church. That'd be true of us. We get back to the basics, and there find our identity shaped by God's very good idea. Second, who's your audience? Why don't you think about it in two categories? Who's your audience within the body of Christ? Who do you have the opportunity to impact, to stir up their affections and joy about God's very good ideas? There's someone you could meet with, pray with, or there is there a book study there, a Bible study that you could lead? Is there a role in the church of deacon or some ministry team that you could embrace and find this audience within the body of Christ of people that you will point to and remind and encourage to see God's very good idea as the reality of their life and the non-believers as well. well. Who are those who are lost and far from God in your life? And how will you share God's very good idea with them? When? We share with them. And then lastly, what's our message? This will be one of the main focuses of the next two chapters. Is your message God's very good idea, the gospel? Or is it something else? My wife and I were talking about it like this. What if an alien, right? I don't know why. But an alien comes to this earth and he's tasked with spying on you for the next two weeks of your life. You don't know it, but he has access to your checking account, not to use it, but to watch it. Your social media, your text messages, your email. He sees everywhere you go, everything you do, every conversation that you have. At the end of that time, what would he say is the one thing you're living for, the one thing you're banking on, the basket you're putting all your eggs in? What would he say? That it is, this little alien, he walks like this. What would he say you're hitching your wagon to? Like, would his conclusion be, wow, they really care about having a nice house. Man, those people really value their family's reputation. Fighting for that all the time. They sure do have a lot of stamps in their passport. They're really consumed with that little rectangle screen they hold in their hand. Like, would that be the takeaway? They really love comfort or money or working out or sports or cars or stuff. It's harsh, I know. I'm not pointing that I'm pointing at myself. Right? But but what or would they say those people really love Jesus? Maybe you haven't replaced the gospel with something else. Maybe you've just added something to it. Maybe these aliens, I don't know why aliens, but maybe these aliens would say they really love Jesus, but after following you around for two weeks, they would have a convoluted idea of what it meant to love Jesus. 
To love Jesus means you got to be a Republican, it looks like. To love Jesus means you got to be woke, or to love Jesus means you got to be reformed. To love Jesus means you got to embrace or denounce critical race theory, and you got to do it fiercely, man. I mean, you got to really be after that. To love Jesus means you've got to freak out about what the world is saying about gender. You, I mean, you got to be posting about that on social media all the time and be really scared. That's what it means to, to love Jesus. you got to fight in the comment threads. Now, I'm not saying those things don't demand thoughtfulness in conversation, and I'm not saying that some of those things don't offer uh, incredibly insightful and important things that we must think about as uh, children of God. But they're not the gospel. They don't get tacked on as a caboose to the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. And all those other things must be filtered through, not attached to the truth of the gospel. So may we think about those important things. Might we even pursue that list of other things. But may the gospel be what drives what is your message? Is it the good news of God's very good idea? Or is it something else? The plea that Paul is going to make over and over again in the book of Galatians is return to the true gospel. And that's what I want for us. That the one wagon we would hitch ourselves, or the one horse we would hitch our wagon to would be the gospel. That the basket we put all our eggs in would be the gospel. That the thing we bank our very lives on would be the gospel. That the thing we live for would be the gospel. That we would embrace God's very good idea. We would take up our cross and we would follow after Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus creates a diverse family born to a life of ongoing transformation by the power of the Spirit. That's God's very good idea. And this very good idea is worth giving your life away to. Might that be true of us. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to believe, that because Jesus was crucified and on the cross bore the penalty for all of our sins, because you raised Jesus from the dead and he is now seated at your right hand, interceding on behalf of the children of God that we have power to live by, we have hope to live by, we have uh, joy to live in, and it completely transforms who we are, and so may we live in that identity. May we live in that reality. May we proclaim that message and may we proclaim it both to those who believe and those who do not yet believe. And in that, may we be beacons of light shining forth your very good idea. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts. We exist to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone. 
and we'd love for you to experience what God is doing as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. Connect with us online at www.mercyvillage.church.